Well, uh, heavy passage today, powerful, so I'm going to kind of make it a little bit fun. Let me, let me tell you a story of something that happened to me. I want to start at the end because it, it just goes better that way. Uh, it, it ends with this. I have, I have the best lawn on my entire street. I mean, way, like a lot better. And it's, it's not like, I'm, I'm, I'm counting the people that have a yard service. Okay. I'm, counting, I'm counting the retired guys on the block. I'm just, it's the better lawn. That's all there is to it. A lot of hard work on my part. But, uh, I mean, the full truth be told, I think I took the pole position this summer because uh, we were gone during, you know, we had the water rationing, and I didn't water ration. And so when we came back, all the lawns were dead, but mine was like, pow. But that doesn't matter. I still have the best lawn on my street. Okay, now, the story that sets this up is important. Years ago, on my climb to the top, Anyway, I just finished a big Saturday of getting the yard uh, cleaned up, and I had mowed and edged and, 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 and did all the trimming around and then blew everything. And then there's that after you know, thing where you compare, and then you celebrate, and then you gloat. And then I was on my way around to the backyard, and I had the leaf blower. Uh, I was carrying that. And then, like, out of nowhere, this little bug comes flying in and just zaps Mach 2 right into my ear knocks me to the ground, I fall on leaf blower, I think I bruised a rib, and I was down there, didn't know what happened. And it, a little demon was still alive. And I know it had to be like this big to fit in my ear canal, I appreciate that, but listen, when he started to try to fly, it was like he was a California king condor. And he couldn't fly, and so he tried to crawl his way out of there with his razor claws. And so I was just on the ground yelling and trying to get some help when I finally got inside the house and figured out what I had to do to get this this kamikaze bug out of my ear. And laying there, I felt like there was a lesson for me, you know? And here's what I thought. Me. Of all people, me. I mean, I have, like, the strength and the intelligence and just the sheer, like, competitive stamina to have already had a yard better than the four widows that live on our street and that, and that guy that doesn't even edge, and I was, like, right on the heels of the two retired guys, me, like, taken out by, like, a, a simple little bug, completely disabled by something this small. And, and, then I, and then I projected, that's all it takes? I thought about all of the world history could have been changed by a bug flying into the ear of Alexander the Great or Kublai Khan, and then thousands, millions of people would live. Laying there on the ground in my house, waiting for this bug to get out of my ear, I thought, I am no more than an Otis. O-T-U-S. It's a Greek word that means breath. It means like a vapor, a, a mist. And therein lies like the nature of Homo sapien made in the very image of God, and yet weak as candle smoke. We, we're like, we're, the, the nature of man is we're, we're below God, but we're above the mammals. And we have to play our part in this in-between place. And sometimes, like our inflated egos want us to elevate up, and it calls us to be playing the part of God, like we could do that. You know, arrogance does that. And sometimes, like our, our passions, and when we surrender to those passions, we find ourselves desiring to play the part of a 
like a stray dog just to feel good. That's the nature of Homo sapiens. And sometimes when we're proud, we feel like little things that humiliate us, we have that coming to us. I don't know, like a bug. The, the idea of, of, of us playing our part and that desire to play the part of God instead, arrogance, egocentric, you know, living, that pride, that's the theme of a lot of James' book uh, in, the, in the Bible. He, he's going to write a lot towards that because when we, play, when we play the part of like judge or sovereign, it ends up tearing a church apart. It ends up tearing a family apart. And, and he's writing towards that in his, in his lessons <clears throat> and addressing that directly. Earlier in the book itself, he started talking about the power of the tongue or the mouth, uh, the words that we say. And he says, listen, you can, you can destroy in a single email or, or a short afternoon something that's beautiful and has taken years to develop just by saying words. So watch your mouth. And then later he, he addresses, you know, what the problem with the mouth is not the tongue, not the mouth itself, but rather it's the heart, because out of the heart is what the mouth speaks. And so last week we saw in chapter 4 of, of James 1 through 11, he just says we've got to get it right with God. We've got to get our hearts right. And so he calls on a full-blown revival to take place. He expects absolute repentance to be, to, to be part of our experience, because he's trying to bring us to a place of true humility, complete humbleness. That's the part the man is supposed to play. As homo sapiens, we are to be humble. That's the theme. And he's going to plead, his, his, his final conclusion in his, his revival sermon, it begins and it ends with humility, being the gold standard of what it means to play the part of a man. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 6 and then in verse uh, 10. So that's why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So Christian maturity is, uh, it's not passion or emotional, uh, you know, experiences. It's, it's not Bible memory for the sake of Bible memory. It's not rituals. It's this. It's being identified with Christ, and Christ is humble. It's becoming like Christ in life is when we attach our self-image to the nature of Christ and Christ crucified. Christ crucified. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we do that, we're we're acting like we were made to. We we're playing the part we were scripted. So humility, that's the theme of today's passage. We love to see humility in other people's lives. It is, it, it's attractive. It, it's, it's winsome. It draws us to that humble person. We want humility in our lives. <laughs> we just don't want to have to get it. You know, it's like, I want to be in shape. I just don't want to get in shape. I just want to be in shape. And so this, work, this week, we're going to look at, at humility, what it looks like, how to get it, those sorts of things. And the, the idea here is, is that we just need to play our part, Otis, 
not the part of Yahweh. That part's taken. He's going to say, stay in your lane, human, or things start breaking. The things that are sacred, like a church or a family, start being torn apart when we do things we shouldn't do. Now, before we look at the passage itself, it would be great if we started at the end because it just, it's better that way. What he's going to tell us is he's going to say, if we have these deep-seated, life-changing convictions about two truths about God and one truth about man, we can, we can find ourselves like Christ, that being humble. Two truths about God and one about man. The first about God is that God's precepts, his Bible, is over us. It defines us. It tells us what is right and real and true. And the second principle we learn about God in this passage is that he's sovereign. He rules. That's what sovereign means. Everything we see, all created things, seen and unseen, belongs to him. And he can do whatever he wants with it. And he's not asking for advice. The thing we learn about man is this. James says, in a, he asks a question in verse 12, and then he answers it in 14. And the question is, but you, who are you? And then in 14, he answers the question, and he says, you're a vapor, a mist, a breath. In Greek, it's Otis, O-T-U-S. Who are you? Who am I? Oh, man, you're Otis. And so the theme here is like, settle down, Otis. (laughs) Be humble. Play your part. Just do what you're supposed to do. Rise above your passions like of of the animal and and don't try to pretend to be God. And we pretend to be God. We play God's parts when we do two things. That's the issues in chapters 11, or in chapter 4, 11 through 17. Two ways we show ourselves to be, I want to be God. One is that we're going to judge others. And the second way is in our own life, we're going to act like we're sovereign over our own life. And when we do that, we destroy the things beautiful around us. So stay in your lane. And we left our lane when we look down at other people, when we get cocky and feel like our plans have to come into effect. So let's look at the first one. When playing God with others as a judge. This is when we're playing God with others as a judge. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Excuse me. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment of it. So first, let me tell you, James is not saying don't be discerning about other people. Of course, you need to, to know how to avoid troublesome people and Uh, The nature of a society that's civilized has judges that are making judicial decisions. What he's saying here is like this is a a proud Christian who looks upon other Christians and sees themselves as superior to them and speaks down to them. In In a word, it's like condescending. The Greek word itself like paints a little picture uh to when it says slander, and the same word is used for uh, speaks against. Literally, it says talk down. When you're talking down to a person, like they're less than you, or you're talking 
down to a third person about them, talking, I mean, putting them in their place. When we're judging and pronouncing condemnations towards people. James says, when we do that, we're acting like God for two different reasons, and we are way out of bounds. Two reasons, and it's showing that we're proud and not humble. The first one is, he says, when we're looking down and speaking down on someone, it's more than that person. It's, it's the law itself. We're talking down at the law itself. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaking against the law and judges it. The Bible clearly says, do not slander. It clearly says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. It, it, it says, love your, James even quotes, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the person that does that is not looking, it, actually, it's not like doing what it's told, not obeying the law, but judging the law, saying, oh, that's a law for thee, but not for me. That's a law that I'm not particularly currently interested in obeying. That's like pulling a page out and saying, I don't like those verses and tearing it right out. I would never do that again. <laughs> but he's saying, well, like, we're, he's, play your part, Otis. You didn't write those rules. You don't judge those rules. Those rules are over you. And he just, the next step is just, the second reason this is not our part to play is like if you're judging the rules, you're actually judging the rule maker. And so he says, like, you're, you're judging the rule giver. Look at verse 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver, one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You, who are you? It's not you, Otis. You're not the lawgiver. You don't judge. You're not the one who can save or destroy. That's a position of authority and we don't have that. We don't de define what is right and real and true. I love how he says, but you, <laughs> but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's written in a way that puts you at the very first of the sentence and then repeats it over here. Like, of all people, me, me of all people, am judging others? This is kind of a slap in the face towards kind of our pride. Here's our, a wonderful quote by a scholar. With shattering bluntness, yeah, James crushes any right his readers may have claimed to sit in judgment over his neighbors. And this is not to rule out civil courts and judges. Instead, it is to root out the harsh and unkind critical spirit that continually finds fault in others. Humility is under the law, and under the lawgiver. And next time you self, catch yourself like in this self-righteous declaration of, oh, those people, here's a great scripture memory to memorize. There's a lot of people don't memorize this verse, but memorize this verse. Me, me of all people, playing the part of judge, I'm judging the Bible, and I'm judging the Bible's writer. That's going to leave nothing but chaos and destruction in my wake. You, you of all people. Paul Tripp writes the power of humility in a community. Because then we start playing our part accurately. He says, boy, watch, watch how peace and unity and beauty breaks out. 
Here's a quote from Paul Tripp. Humility radically changes how we respond to sin and weakness and failure and immaturity and error or, posi- or opposition to other people. Humility makes it, it hard to be quick to criticize and dismiss or to judge others because we know that we're numbered among them. So humility makes us compassionate and understanding towards people and arrogance makes us want to be the judge and that's not our role to play that's not our part that's God's part the second way we play the part of God in our lives is when we not in other people's lives but in our own life when we act like we're the one that's sovereign (laughs) look when we play God with your life as a sovereign he says now listen you who say uh tomorrow today or tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city and then we're going to spend a year there and then we're going to carry on a business and then we're going to make a money james is not criticizing people that plan ahead bible's full of passages say plan ahead be shrewd right he's talking about being way too confident in that plan he in a word it presumptuous it's like, oh, like I have final authority about how this is going to work. It's, it's about tone. And you can hear the heart or attitude of a person's soul in this tone. Oh, I, you know, I know when I'm going to go into this business. I know where I'm going to move. I know how long I'm going to be there. I know what business I'm going to be in. I know how much money I'm going to make. <laughs> this whole thing worked out. And as though we actually can control those things. It's, it's, it's funny how many cultures have seen that type of presumption and, and mocked it. Like, oh, you Otis. <laughs> uh, just has a little proverb that says, uh, we plan, God laughs. There's an American version of that that says, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. There's a, a Spanish poem written, it's called To a Mouse called, Oh, the plans of mice and men often go awry. I think Mike Tyson said it as good as anybody. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. And there is the problem, right? James is listening to this person roll out all of his plans, and he's watching, and he says, you know, I'm going to just sit at a safe distance and watch this person's life. Because, look, if as it, it's just a little... As a breath, as a, as a reed, as a vapor, we got to understand, like, we don't have the ability to be sovereign. To be sovereign, you have to have at least these two attributes. You have to know and you have to have power. This knowledge and power, that's what happens, which you need to have sovereignty. You have to, like, know what the future holds, and then you have to have the power to do something about the future. And so James is going to say, hey, Otis, you got neither of those. <laughs> and, you're, and you're arrogant. Look what he says about how little we know. In uh, verse 14, actually the whole thing, it says the rest of, the, of our passage together. He says, the knowledge part, he says, why do you, why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And then in the power, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast and, and in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. 
If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do that, it's sin for them. So this first principle here is that life is unpredictable. <laughs> Look what he says. Why do you, why? Because you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Making certain long-term plans, oh, that's, that's cute. I mean, all it takes is, I don't know, just an accident, a, a change in financial situation, uh, the weather, let's just say a bug. This will set you back one. Here's a great quote. The, the emergency rooms are filled with people who had plans. And so, are, so is the cemetery. What are you going to do today, honey? Big plans. Got a full list of things to do. I'm going to start off, take a shower, slip on the soap, spend four hours in the ER. No one does that. People don't end up in a graveyard because they finish their to-do list. They didn't expect, many of them didn't expect to be there. And so, Jason, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And not only that, not only do you not know, you can't do anything about it anyway. You don't have any power. Let's, let's see your power. Let's, look what he says about our power. Uh, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We're just a mist. We're Otis. There's a translation by Philip, J.D. Phillips. Says, uh, he says, what after all is your life? It's just a puff of smoke visible for a little while and then dissolving into thin air. The Bible describes a man, just mankind, you know, homo sapien, like as, uh, as a flower on a hot day, uh, as, as a leaf being kicked around by the wind, as a shadow. I like what Kansas, the band, did uh, with the Bible passage. All we are is dust in the wind. That's, we have no power. <laughs> and so James is saying, like, don't write your plans down in cement or maybe even ink. Maybe pencil. Use that Etch-a-Sketch thing. Don't think you can do much because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you can't do much. Uh, a life properly understood with humility lives life as if they're not sovereign. And their hands are open to that. Look at verse 16. He's condemning us in that as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and such boasting is evil. It, this is humbling for us to hear that how little control we have about future things. We don't know what's going to happen and we can't control what's going to happen. I mean, we experience this regularly. Like, I don't know, uh, the Astros are ahead by five runs in the bottom of the third. You're looking at it, and you're like, this game's over. I'm turning the TV off. I'm going to bed, calling it an early night. Right? That's easy. Five runs in three innings. You wake up the next morning. I didn't even know what was going to happen in the fourth inning. How did that even happen? Did God know what was going to happen? Did he care? Is he a Phillies fan? What happened? 
David uh, Friedman, you, you, know, you might know his book, but David Friedman uh, co-authored a book called 100 Things You Should Do Before You Die. Now, th- this was a runaway bestseller and started the entire genre of things you ought to do before you die. It's a list of you know, just spectacular experiential events that you need to make sure you go to on your bucket list. He started the bucket list thing. Uh, it tells stories about where he able to make all these plans to run with the bulls in Spain. And that he did that. He made plans for that, executed those plans. What he didn't plan on was walking down his hallway in his house in California, tripping, hitting his head, and dying at 47 years old. He hadn't planned on that. Newspaper said he didn't get to quite 50 of his own 100 things to do before you die. Because he didn't know what tomorrow holds, and he didn't have a, the power to change it. We're not supposed to play God. In the idea in our own lives, like we have some kind of sovereignty over that. We're supposed to live in humility, and what that looks like is, is opening our lives to God, opening our, our futures to him, because he is in control. Look what it says in 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live here or do this or do that. It's, it's verbalizing your submission to his authority and his rulership over all things, especially your lives. And that shows itself in two different ways. This is what it means. It means opening your hands, and you could even, if you're not writing, you could just pull, turn your palms up, and, and it's like you give him your life, your plans. This is what I hope to do, God willing. And, and if you don't know whether or not you're holding those plans or not, it's, it's kind of easy to tell. When you lose that plan, how angry or despairing do you become? It's a petty example, but it makes a good point. Like, almost regularly, our trip to the beach. It's a vacation. Like, open your hands up. It's supposed to be fun. Flat tire, south of San Antonio. I'm like, I'm, I'm so angry. Not just because I'm changing a tire in the hot sun, but because we're supposed to be in three rivers by now. Okay, there was a schedule to keep on a vacation. I'm holding plans on a vacation. So one way to see if you're holding your plans open or not is by what happens when your plans don't happen. How, like, yeah, it's upsetting, but is it, is, it, is it worthy of wrecking the rest of the day for the whole family? Would you think you were sovereign? Another way of doing that is, is the twin sister of, of anger is also, it can be depression or despair. If you don't get that job promotion, sure, it's disappointing. Yeah, but you're holding your hands open. And because you are, you're not devastated by it. You're not depressed and overwhelmed by it. But if you are, you've been holding that. You're going to go to this city and work at this company for this long, and you're going to have this title. Look at you, sovereign. But you're not. We're just in Otis. So it's a... To, to live the way we were meant to live as human beings, stuck in between in the image of God and above all mammals, is to have a worldview, like a whole way of looking at life that's humble and our hands are open 
with our lives. And, and we're, we're saying, you know, like, I am not sovereign, but I am surrendered to a sovereign king. I am not in charge, but I'm a slave to the most powerful Yahweh. That's like one of the ways we do this. We, and while our hands are open, I said there's two ways we open our hands up. One of those ways is we give God our plans. And the second way is while our hands are open and he might be taking some of those away, he might be adding some to us. When God gives us his plan for our lives, we're open to receive that. We're like wanting to hear what he has. We want to do his will for our life. For years I had the plan uh, to become a lawyer, and God took that and then put in ministry. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah Ebling, was, uh, he, he taught three weeks ago, I think, and that was the theme of his whole lesson. You could go watch that, but his introduction was clever. It was, he, you know, he's talking to his wife. He said, like, I got these plans, and they include never doing youth ministry again. <laughs> you remember the story? He had to hold those open, and God took those plans and then inserted youth ministry for seven more years. But, you know, because they were surrendered and humbled, Dana and Jeremiah said, sure, we'll do what's next. It's, it's, it's letting go of our plans and being open to God's plans because he's the king. We're just Otis. You can see this in the writing of Paul, St. Paul, humble. He wrote the Corinthians and said, you know, I, I, I care to see you. Lord, he literally writes, Lord willing. I'm hoping to remain here if God permits. He even begins his, his book uh, in Romans saying, I, he says, perhaps God will allow me to come see you. And God does not. He'll never leave there. And Paul was open to that. I'll go to college, Lord willing. Start a family. Oh, I would love to have children. That's a deep... Uh, no, back open. Maybe, maybe not. Humility is understanding our Otisness, that we're just dust, a breath, a vapor, smoke. In Latin, it's Dio Valente. Dio, let's all say that. Dio Valente. Dio Valente. It's a saying the Puritans had for years and still somewhat popular today. It, me it means if the Lord allows, the Lord willing. And, and the Puritans would give speeches or they just talk to one another and they would say, well, Dio, Dio Valente. They would end their letters to one another, you know, sign Matt Cassidy, DV, Lord willing, Dio Valente. They were just playing their part, knowing that their hands were open. And so James would say, look, plan, dream, aspire, Deo Valente. All of that is good with your hands open. Finally, uh, James, you know, he talked about being under the word of God and obeying the word of God, not judging others and not being sovereign. He's going to come back to that first part in his last sentence here where he's not playing God. He says, if anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. He, he, he's, he's showing us that the, the Bible is how we rule our lives. 
It has authority over us. We are doers of the word, not judges of the word. And we show ourselves in submission to the great judge that's merciful but just by doing what he says. An open soul lets God speak to them, and they listen. Let me show you how David, famous for a man after God's own heart, talks about this attitude of humility and wanting to play his part as a servant of a sovereign judge. Listen to how he writes about listening for the word and how the word is written to him. And then ultimately it is so that that word would be like tattooed on his soul and then he would live that out in his life. This is in Psalm 40, it's verses 6 through 8. He says, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, right? Rituals, Bible memory, you know, all that Bible memory is good, but it's not how you keep score. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Here's what matters. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in your scroll. I desire to, to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. He's listening for that. He's, just, he's reading this Bible. It's over his head. God is sovereign over him. It's written to him. He's looking forward for an opportunity to have his will open, his life goals and God's will for his life. Another beautiful expression of the way we're supposed to live and the part we're supposed to play as a simple Otis is the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. Listen to the humility. Listen, listen to the power of, of knowing where we are in creation and enjoying that. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy and sacred is your name. Up there. You know, and, and it's like your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine. On earth as it is in heaven. And this humble aspect of I need you for daily bread. I need you to forgive me of my trespasses. I need you to help me forgive other people of their trespasses against me. I am so pulled towards my mammal animal that I, I, just, I need you to deliver me from temptation and deliver me from evil. And just to be clear, it's your kingdom, it's your power, and it's your glory. Forever and ever. The life of a Christian is in surrender to the great judge and the sovereign king. And humility means identifying with Christ. And it's identifying with Christ crucified. There's a passage that literally says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live, I live by the power of the Spirit. And I'm just obeying that. But it's Christ crucified that he's referring to here. Humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the death on the cross, this crucifixion, it's a, it's a long and lingering death, isn't it? And I, I must say that life can be that way. Sometimes you have to be humiliated to become humble. And sometimes what doesn't kill your ego can make you humble. 
So don't be afraid of those things in your life where a bug flies in your ear, maybe in front of people you're trying to impress. It could be a good thing. It could remind you of who you are and also who you're not. You're to be and play the part of a humble servant, a breath, but in the image of God. When we play that part, we're giving and forgiving to those around us, and beauty in community breaks out in families and in churches. That's why James wrote this passage. Would you uh, join me in a prayer of God bringing humility into our lives? Lord, we love to see humility in other people. (laughs) And I know you'd love to see humility in us, and I ask that you would help make that happen. You chose us, you died for us, you provided righteousness You bring us security because of the promises you give us. Our hope is in your return. Everything that matters of significance for eternity comes outside of me and from you. And so pride makes no sense. There's nothing logical or theological about it. We are humbled by who you are, what you've done, and the word that you've given us. And so now we turn our palms up. Why don't we do that? Let's turn our palms up. Let's pray this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me whatever your will. Spirit, reign in us. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Your will, your way. Do whatever you want. Come and move and come and reign. Let your kingdom invade our hearts. Let your kingdom invade our hearts. You're the king. We're the slaves. We pray this as we live this out in Jesus' name. Amen.